Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am really excited to welcome up a panel that's going to talk through a really important topic, operationalizing how we do machine learning and AI ethically and to Lead us through that. I'm excited to have our moderator for the panel, uh, Kari Johnson from VentureBeat, and he will introduce the rest of the panel. Kari and panel, welcome to TwimmelCon. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Kari Johnson, and I'm senior AI staff writer at VentureBeat, and uh, really excited to be here with our panel. I could introduce everyone, but I think everyone will do a better job if they do it themselves. Um, so uh, we'll just quickly go down the row, um, but we can begin with a quick icebreaker, I think, if that's all right. Um, I was thinking icebreakers are, um, they can be corny, that's possible, but uh, sometimes uh, they also let you know a little bit about the other people too. So uh, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I'll go first. I wanted to be a firefighter, but um, I also asked my mom to do an op-ed on local television about why kids don't need to take showers. Um, so <laughs> it could be that I'm doing what I always wanted to be. Um, I okay. wanted to be a politician and ultimately a president. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> well, I wanted to be a writer. I actually wanted to write novels, and I write uh, Scalicode. So yeah, here we are, yeah. Um, at various points, I wanted to be a nurse, uh, marine biologist, archaeologist, and writer. <laughs> These are all good professions. I think we're doing good stuff, too. But um, again, down the line, um, uh, if, if we could start with Perry. Uh, and can you please uh, correct me on the correct pronunciation of your name and tell us a little about, about the current work that you do? Sure. I'm Perry Naz. I'm coming from Georgian Part. I work for Georgian Partners right now. For those of you who are not familiar with Georgian Partners, we are a venture capital based in Toronto, biggest private fund in Canada, investing in growth stage companies, SaaS software services. And our business plan and model is a little bit different. We have impact team where I'm coming from in addition to the investment team. We are like an applied research lab for our portfolio companies, de-risking research and innovation for them and accelerating their adoption of cutting-edge disruptive technologies such as machine learning and AI. So we are a team of practitioners working on R&D projects with our companies. Awesome. So I'm uh, Guillaume, which is French for William. So if my first name is too hard to pronounce, feel free to call me William or even Bill, if uh, if you must. Uh, essentially, so uh, I lead computational science at LinkedIn, which is a team that's heavily uh, uh, invested in fairness. I assume I probably don't need to introduce LinkedIn, but if you don't know what it is, you should check it out. It's a pretty cool. Uh, it's a pretty cool <laughs> network. Uh, um, and essentially, you know, we, uh, what I've primarily worked on uh, lately is, is specifically about like the experimentation side um, of fairness and responsible design. I'm Rachel Thomas, and I'm director of the Center for Applied Data Ethics at the University of San Francisco, which we just launched a few months ago, so it's still very new. And I'm focused on kind of harms that are happening now, so that includes uh, uh, unjust bias, surveillance and the erosion of privacy, uh, and dis disinformation. And at the center, we'll be kind of working on a research, a mix of research, education, and policy. Um, yeah, I'm also co-founder of Fast AI, uh, where we're interested in kind of getting people from uh, more diverse backgrounds into AI. So just to get us started, um, how do you get started with 
operationalizing AI ethics? What do you feel like are the, the first steps that, that an organization should be taking to set the table? That's a very good question. I believe you have to start with the vision, your vision of the company. And that's what we always value a lot when we are doing the due diligence. Then, of course, the culture is also very important. Teams, do you have the right team in place? And you have to understand that, of course, you are building softwares, but most of these issues started from not having diverse teams working on these software products. So it's really important to start by building a diverse team, not only in terms of the gender or ethnicity, but maybe we need to have new roles in our machine learning or data science teams. Maybe we need sociologists. Maybe we need somebody with legal and compliance background. So it's not only about, okay, let's have equal number of women and men or from different ethnicity, but it's also about maybe thinking about uh, diversity in the background of the team. And at the end, there is like the question of what kind of processes do we need in place to be able and enable the team to build responsible, ethical AI products. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think values and vision are very, very important. I mean, we found that, you know, we can't really have just one central team that writes one piece of code and fixes fairness, for example, for the whole company. And so it's really everyone's problem. Everyone kind of is, is involved in this. And so what that means is that you really have to have the right uh, alignment in terms of values and culture. So when you join LinkedIn, first thing they tell you before you even sit down is like members first, right? So if you have a doubt that you always put the member first and also act like an owner. And I think once everyone kind of feels like, okay, you know, being fair, treating the members fairly and as the way I would want to be treated myself, when everyone is kind of behind that, it makes it a lot easier. And of course, you know, to get started practically, you also want to have the right tools and the ways to measure and kind of the right processes. But really without, without culture and without the values, it's, it's actually, I think, very hard to do anything, given the fact that it's really kind of a broad effort that everyone should take ownership of. Yeah. Yeah, and for uh, concrete resources, uh, one resource I highly recommend is the Marcula Center has a um, toolkit for tech ethics, and they recommend kind of a number of processes you can implement, but a key one is ethical risk sweeps. And so this is kind of periodically scheduling times to really go through kind of what could go wrong and like what are the ethical risks? Because um, I think a big big part of ethics is also kind of yeah thinking through what can go wrong before it does and having uh, processes in place around uh, what happens when there are mistakes mistakes um, or errors. Diving a deep bit deeper into that, what does the panel think about in terms of uh, favorite frameworks or approaches or different tools that are available and out there now that, um, that teams can use? So let's start with uh, what are under the umbrella of responsible AI, what are main, my, my main concerns? Privacy is one of them. And uh, not only about the tools, but also about the technology. I really believe in differential privacy and federated learning to build privacy-preserving machine learning uh, products and systems. In terms of explainability and uh, communication with the end users or actually debugging, enabling developers to debug the systems, I really like... Uh, approaches like Lime or A Lime or Anchor Lime. In terms of uh, fairness and bias, I believe it's really important to root out bias. So I I personally use the tool uh, developed by EPFL University and I guess Columbia University. Its name is FairTest, discovering unwarranted. Uh, associations in data-driven applications and Google What If tool. They are also my favorites. 
And uh, I guess that's it. Yeah. And we recently also open sourced our TensorFlow uh, tool for building privacy preserving machine learning systems. Yeah, that, so that we 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 have similar kind of you know, uh, areas that, that we that we care about. I would say LinkedIn. There's a lot of uh, internal tools that we're also building. Uh, some of it is that there are some great tools out there that don't always scale, and, and we have we have a lot of, of data that we have to kind of like uh, process. And we also have some tools that uh, you know we're kind of building kind of completely of our own. So for example, we have uh, a lot of fairness built into, built into experimentation. Right, that the idea is like we. It's not just about the algorithm. It's not just about you know are, are you fair from like an algorithmic perspective. But like once your data, once your outputs are, are put in front of humans, what, what kind of outcomes are we seeing between like treatment and control, things like this. And so that's also the kinds of, we also care a lot about that, which is try to think about it when you train your data, when, I mean, when you first put together your training data, when you train your model, and then even on, in an ongoing basis, how does it interact with people? How does it interact with users? And so we try to cover all of that, uh, at least, you know, the whole kind of like um, machine learning and AI lifecycle. Yeah, going along with that, I think that some of the issues that arise uh, from not thinking about the whole system and so kind of how the different parts interact, um, I think a lot of tech kind of encourages us to kind of, you know, hyper-specialize and it's really important for people across different groups to be talking. Um, one great idea I've heard from Alex Fierst is having um, like having trust and safety embedded with engineering product and design uh, because they have, you know, trust and safety is kind of seeing what, what can go wrong and what happens when it does. And that, you know, engineering product and design tend to live in a bit more optimistic world. Um, but I really think having kind of those communication channels open between groups and also having kind of all the necessary stakeholders, like everyone that's going to be impacted downstream involved. What do you feel like are some of your biggest concerns as it relates to responsible AI today? Or to put it another way, if you could change one thing about the AI ethics debate today, what would it be? I think I might actually say like, uh, you know, focusing a bit more on harm and less on bias. I think sometimes we get focused on our algorithms and you're like, oh, there's bias. And and I think there's a, there's a sense in which like, you know, every algorithm is going to be biased somewhat, but you might see very different types of harm. But so at LinkedIn, we're, we're about people's careers. And so we actually are very mindful of like, are we helping everyone, you know, kind of like get ahead in their careers. And so in terms of kind of shifting the debate, I think there's a sense in which it's, it's sometimes we're too focused on kind of the algorithm itself and kind of the bias of the algorithm versus kind of like taking a little step back and kind of talking, thinking about harm more globally. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Like, I think bias is an important issue, but it's just one of many and kind of looking at harms and particularly harms that are already happening um, when there are mistakes. You know, we've seen mistakes of uh, an algorithm cutting off healthcare incorrectly uh, for Medicaid benefits, of teachers wrongly being fired, um, that kind of there are things already happening and understanding those. Um, and I think a uh, uh, one of the dynamics that comes into play is that um, algorithmic systems can make it harder for anybody to feel responsible. And, you know, bu bureaucracy does this as well, but often algorithms are kind of extending bureaucracy. And this is an idea Dana Boyd has been has talked about. Um, but that's something that alarms me and we need to talk more about of kind of how we build systems where we can feel responsible for the outcomes because that's important. Yeah, I believe also I do agree with the two of you, but I also believe that we need to have machine learning specific quality assurance processes. And also we have to have like a guard laid, guardrails, fault tolerance, and we have to have a plan for when things can go wrong. And we have to reduce the impact of models errors, especially for more critical decision making or applications. 
one of the problems I had so far is like some people believe maybe that these systems are perfect or they can be perfect down the road. But I personally believe because they are probabilistic systems that we are using them for deterministic decision making, we can we might never reach to 100% performance. So it's really important to have guardrails. I, I totally agree with that. And I would add a, one other point also is to ask about just what are the things we shouldn't be doing at all? I think sometimes people skip to this, like, oh, how do we debias the data? You know, and we're seeing this a lot with facial recognition of like, oh, you know, we need to debias it and have more faces of people of color. Uh, but we also need to ask, like, you know, should we be using facial recognition this much at all? And in these use cases and really kind of uh, pausing at the start, too. When it comes to that idea of like um, public perception, you know, you were talking about people believing that it can be a perfect system. It seems like maybe part of the process as well is teaching or at least having public education stuff out there so that people understand that these are probabilistic systems and they're making predictions based on data. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Education is a key for both, not only for the end users, but also for the developers, product leads, or the executive teams in general. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, I agree with that. I would also add on that I think in some cases, tech companies bear some responsibility for overhyping what they're selling mm-hmm. um, and then are kind of, uh, you know, preying on that often uh, often people purchasing these products don't have the understanding of probability that they need or yeah, have these misconceptions that, that uh, AI is 100% accurate. Um, but I think we also have a real responsibility to not overpromise or oversell the capabilities of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely... A lot of marketing injected <laughs> into the AI space. Guillaume, I was curious if you could get, talk a little bit about sort of the practical challenges of scaling um, uh, responsible AI within a large organization. And as an aside to that, if you think of sort of those rules as different for the organization-wide approach as opposed to like specific teams within the company. Yeah. So as I, as I briefly mentioned, it's really, you know, the, the, it really starts with the values kind of in the culture. Uh, and then, you know, it starts with, essentially, we also found that it, it's it's hard to just have one rule that applies to everybody. And so what we try to do is kind of give ourselves the tools, the measurement tool, the analysis tool, the experimentation tools that we can then kind of like deliver to specific teams. And we work with them to figure out like what makes sense for their specific vertical, right? And uh, importantly, we also care about kind of the final output once it's in, once there's an experiment and people are interacting with it. And so, you know, we really try to have like a 360 degree view of the whole process and make sure that you know kind of every part of the process is covered so say you train an algorithm for example you know we'd like to we'd like you to be aware like whether it's let's say a gender representative or something like that and so you know we try to make sure that people have the the, the information in front of their eyes uh, when it's available and we also have you know we just kind of have a lot of meetings where we just kind of discuss whether we this is the right thing or not the right thing Uh, you know it it, my sense that it has to be decentralized uh, to an extent and so this is also why, you know, when we, so we analyze all the experiments and we look at what's happening with the fairness metrics. And sometimes people have like really fairness enhancing things, but they didn't know they did. It's just, it's just a really happy accident. And we also want to be able to like see that and, and reward that and kind of learn from what they did that worked. Right. And so really we're trying to have this kind of like decentralized approach where everyone's an owner. What are some of the sort of major AI systems that are used at LinkedIn? So essentially it's, so we have like we have the feed, we have you know the recommendations. Uh, yeah. So essentially, you know these are these are built into potentially they can be used by by everything basically. So to give you a couple of examples, uh, one that that uses this heavily is the uh, when we rank candidates, so job candidates. You're a recruiter, you log into LinkedIn, you see potential candidates, right? And so those we make sure that they're representative. And so there, you know, we actually make sure that when you see 
uh, let's say your first list of candidates is actually representative of the you know population distribution, the underlying talent pool, and it's just, you know and the bias there is like we're being very very careful that you're seeing something that's representative. So that's that's one example. Yeah. yeah. And, and for the panel, just I'm, I'm curious what you think about in this age of AI, how this ethos of um, move fast and break things with startups has evolved or changed, if at all. Yeah, I believe. Generally, it's much harder for startups uh, to proactively prioritize responsible and ethical use of AI. It's been kind of overwhelming effort and endeavor for them. Uh, and that's why we gave them a framework uh, in our team. We provided the principles and framework for them. And we, we try to kind of educate them that trust and responsible AI is a, you can think of it in, a two, in, in, the, in terms of two-dimensional space. Where one vertic- uh, when di- one dimension is the value you deliver to your customers, and the other dimension is the level of comfort. So of course the value uh, is like the actual product you are building, and then level of comfort can be about it's mainly about data ownership and do customers have any opinion in your product roadmap or not? Privacy and security one of the most important ones. And uh, explainability and transparency. Do your customers know how their data is used or end users? And for what kind of purposes you are using that data? And do they have, based on this new compliance, for example, GDPR, right to be to delete their data from your existing databases or even fingerprints from your machine learning systems? Is this something you've run across at Center for Applied Data Ethics? I know you guys are just getting started, but yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I think that um, kind of looking at like on a long time horizon, I think being ethical is a... um, kind of like a profitable decision. And I think there is this real conflict of interest, though, if there's so many short-term pressures and pressures to focus on the short-term. And that's something that is tough, uh, tough to crack. And I think that um, it's great to hear about uh, like a venture firm working on that because I think often the incentives around venture capital and kind of just our current corporate ecosystem push people on short term and that it does take a longer time horizon to think about, um, think about ethical behavior and the benefit, the financial benefits of ethical behavior. I think that there are, uh, you know, deeper benefits to ethical behavior um, in the short term as well. Yeah. And and I think also like if there's also the risk that like if you're very biased, you might only kind of cater to one population, right? And so eventually that limits the growth of your user base. So even from a business perspective, you actually want to have everyone come on board, right? And so it's actually, I think it's actually, I agree with you, I think it's actually good business in the long run to actually be responsible and worry about this. I would say though, I, I, don't, I don't think LinkedIn ever really was kind of move fast and break things uh, as far as I can tell. It's a, you know, I, I think it's, if you're an ML engineer, sometimes it's, you can kind of get carried away and it's, maybe you forget what you're working on. But at LinkedIn, at least, you know, when you're working on like something that's about jobs, it, it kind of like puts this, you know, you kind of realize like, okay, like this is important. And how would I want people to treat my resume and, and, and my own job? And, and so my sense is like, and of course I wasn't around when the company was created, but you know, it, it seems like it, it seems like for a very long time at least it's been about responsibility and, and kind of like putting members first. So I've got two more questions, and then I'm gonna open it up and see if there's any questions from the audience. One of them was, you know, Rachel and I were talking about this before we got started today, and it's like, so the Pope was talking about AI ethics effectively at a tech conference at in Vatican City a couple of days ago, which is something I want to see pictures of or something. It must be interesting. But I mean, and then, you know, they're essentially talking about uh, a need for protection of the, of the common, uh, of the common good from 
AI perspective as well as tech. And, you know, other ones, examples of AI ethics coming up um, in the context of power and AI, um, it feels like a word that's been missing from a lot of conversations around artificial intelligence. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and someone else, uh, Joey Bulamwini, having a long exchange about uh, the systems working best on uh, white men and not as well on uh, women of color, for example. Um, it seems present in a lot of these. And this is a very long-winded way of asking um, uh, it, how the panel, um, if there are any specific um, ways that you see this power dynamic playing out in the AI ethics conversation today. I think, you know, this is also one place where like diversity is like super important, right? Because essentially the people are in the room making the decision about like what should be fair will kind of refer to their own experience. And so that's why, you know, it's very important to like make sure that both in the company and also like kind of like inside, you know, your, your, like your development uh, teams, like there's actually as much diversity as possible. Uh, so that the decision kind of is made in a way that that's kind of like kind of conscious of, of everyone's kind of, you know, uh, approaches. Um, I think, you know, it, it's, and, and really diversity is probably one of the best way to get at least get started on that. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really important uh, point you bring up. I would say one area I think we see it a lot in is um, surveillance technology, which uh, tends to kind of disproportionately be applied against um, against poor people. We've also seen instances of you know Baltimore police uh, using facial recognition to identify protesters protesting the death of Freddie Gray, um, and those things definitely have this kind of clear power differential. And you know even looking at history, kind of how surveillance uh, technology has been used to suppress uh, dissent and uh, moves for, for social, positive social change. Power is a very important dynamic. Um, and then uh, one last thing before asking uh, the audience if you have any questions. Um, uh, to end on a positive note, um, do you have any favorite examples of AI uh, ethics success stories where an organization or team was able to resolve some, some, uh, some challenges or, or confront them? I was working with one of our companies, Ternitin. They are also based on Valley. And we were building a plagiarism detection tool, mainly for investigators and teachers, to mostly for universities and K-12 institutes. And uh, so it's basically using NLP, all your kind of authorship style, not using any PII, not using any student performance, grades, anything. But at the end of like uh, development process, we get together and because I'm not a native speaker, I ask a question like, is it possible that our model is has, for example, more po false positive rate against non-native speakers? And because, you know, like we, historically, there might be more instances of like... Uh, plagiarism for non-native speakers and the model and you know machine learning is all about correlation not necessarily causation and the model might have picked up those kinds of for example grammatical errors as the signs for for example plagiarism and we started testing our system and we used the fair test and we realized yes there is a potential problem and we actually could mitigate and address such bias in the system Oh, that's, yeah, so I, I have two 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 small examples on this. So one that I briefly mentioned is the representative ranker. So when you know when you look for candidates, uh, you essentially see something that's representative. The second one is, is something that we actually discovered when we analyzed the experiment. So it was kind of a surprise, but it turns out so we have this feature that sends like 
job notifications instantly. So you know when when there's a job that's good for you, you instantly get notified. And we looked at the metrics and we're like, wow, this is like really equalizing. So you know it, it seems like people who were not too engaged or like didn't have like that great networks, you know, and were kind of categories that you know we thought were a bit disengaged. These people are just we see the metrics go way up, and we just we wonder why. And it, it turns out you know like. People tend to self-censor when applying to jobs. They're like, they're like, oh, maybe I'm not qualified enough. Maybe I've done good enough. Or I can see there's already people applied. I don't want to do it. And so it turns out that like when an algorithm tells you, hey, we think you should apply to this, you'd be good for this. That can also be empowering. And so that's a success story there, which is, you know, and, you know, it, we just found out that like some of these algorithms actually help people and actually reduce the gap between the categories that we might care about. And so, yeah, these are two, two, two stories that I was, I was pretty happy about. Yeah. Yeah, a story I like is from um, Meetup. Evan Estola, the lead machine learning engineer, shared that when they were building their recommendation system to recommend meetups to people, they realized there was the potential for a feedback loop of fewer women are interested in technical meetups. So then the algorithm might recommend even fewer meetups to women, tech meetups. um, So you would have fewer women attending and kind of create this feedback loop uh, pretty quickly. And so they decided to short circuit that from the start. Um, And I really like that story because it's also an instance of kind of not just unthinkingly trying to optimize a metric, but thinking about, yeah, thinking about the outcome and the taking the responsibility around feedback loops seriously. Nice. And uh, any questions from the audience? There we go. I use this. Speak into the lapel. (laughs) Alrighty. So, um, (laughs) with with the rise of deep learning, um, a lot of more uh, principled approaches have fallen to the wayside in in favor of empiricism. This is going to be a long question, isn't it? Not very long. No, no. (laughs) I see that a lot in natural language processing. But in the case of ethics and AI, how do you think principled approaches fit in? Can you give an example of what you mean by principled approaches? So um, I I work on machine translation, and uh, we've seen uh, a shift towards byte pair encodings using subwords that don't necessarily have any meaning by themselves, as opposed to using a large vocabulary of whole words. So we can't inspect why a model attributes a decision to the subwords themselves as intelligently as before. It, it's kind of in conflict with deep learning's empirical approach to AI, but I'm wondering, do you think it can come back? So kind of what do you do approaches? when your techniques abstract away from your ability to be fair, in a sense? A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah, so I, I would say I think the why is is generally always a hard question, right? So we try to focus kind of at first as like we're seeing some metrics about you know is the performance the same uh, for for groups that we care about? How people interact with it, and even with this, even when the techniques are simple, the why is always kind of a difficult question. Like why is it that we're seeing this? Right? Like, what is it about the algorithm? And sometimes it's not the algorithm; it's about the people. And so when it, when it's about people, like figuring the why is 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 very very complicated. And so I think what a uh, first step, right, is to try and and at least to an extent, try to have some, you know, some idea about like the metrics that we care about or the principles that we care about and maybe be comfortable kind of either delaying something or thinking more deeply about something until we've understood the why. And I agree that like as things get more complex or as, you know, increasingly one algorithm, you know, the output of one is the input of the other one, it, the why gets really, really hard. And that's that's no exception there, if that makes sense. But that's, that's been my experience at least. I also believe that uh, it's so hard, like the root, co- root cause analysis is always hard. As we use more complex machine learning models, it's even harder. But I'm also very encouraged to see 
if we can use the same optimization techniques, because it's like like deep learning, any of those machine learning, they are like optimization tools for us. Can we use the same optimization tools to reach fairness? And there are some papers out there in the recent conferences. They talk about, for example, rather than optimizing uh, over the global population, for example, optimizing for micro segments of the populations and getting to, for example, for example, demographic parity. But of course, for products like machine translation is much more complex because the word embeddings, they can even be racist and we know about all these problems. And it's really harder to kind of modify the objective functions to reach uh, to the fairness in the context of, for example, machine translation. But I'm pretty uh, optimistic that we can use the same technology to get there. And all I would add is I think it can be useful to just even simple techniques of altering your input to see how that <laughs> impacts the output can give you a lot of uh, a lot of insight into to what might be happening, um, as well as to remember that uh, with humans, we're bad at knowing why we make the decisions we do. We do a lot of post hoc justification of our decisions. And so the the causality is often not not well understood there either. Thank you to our great panel. Yeah, thank Round you. Of applause. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.